Good afternoon or whatever time it is from wherever you are tuning in. Welcome to the Poolside Perspectives, the ultimate podcast for all things swimming pools and outdoor living. I'm your host, Kevin Woodhurst, and joining me is my incredible co-host and all-around great guy, Mike Farley. Together, we bring you decades of industry expertise and a passion for creating unforgettable poolside experiences. Get ready to dive into exciting discussions, insider tips, and expert insights that will elevate your outdoor living to new heights. Whether you're a pool owner, a design enthusiast, or simply someone who enjoys basking in the sun by the water, this podcast is your go-to resource for all things pool-related. So grab your sunscreen, put on your shades, plug in, and let's make a splash with Poolside Perspectives. All right, everybody, here we go. This is episode two of Poolside Perspectives podcast with Mike Farley and Kevin Woodhurst. And today we're going to start setting you up with the processes of dealing with the pool salespeople, designers, and how to equip yourself with the information that you're going to need in order to make the best decision possible. So Mike had alluded to this after episode one or during episode one about the resources that are things that you need that you're going to want to bring to the table or at least have in your appointments with your pool designer. So Mike, why don't you go ahead and run with this? So the first thing that happens, and a lot of times we get the wrong information, is someone comes to us and they're building a house. And when they're building a house, they have a document that shows where the house is going to be on the property. And with that process, what we ask for is a survey. And the reason a survey, because it's accurate. And what is a survey, Mike? A survey is going to show the property. It's going to show the house location. And it's always got a stamp on it by the surveyor because the surveyor is going to stamp off on his work. So there's no stamp on it. It's not a survey. It's what's called a plot plan. So when the home builder takes the plans to the city and says, this is where I propose to put the house, that is a plot plan. And that is a proposed location. That's not an exact location. So when they go put it on the ground, what usually happens is in the industry here in North Texas is they do what's called a form survey. They actually go out and survey the forms to make sure that the house isn't past an easement or anything like that. That's also stamped off by the surveyor, but all it usually shows is basically a rough outline of where the house is going to be. It doesn't show where porches are. It just shows where foundation is. Right. You'll get a final survey when the property is finished being built, and it'll show the driveway now and the sidewalks, and it'll show where the porch is and the house is and everything is again stamped off. But sometimes you're trying to design the pool before a final survey and get into the permit process and everything like that. So what you have to get is a form survey. And usually the person that has the form survey, everybody goes to the salesperson that sold them the house and they give them a copy of the pot plant, which is not the right document. Right. The superintendent that's running the job usually has the form survey. He's the only one that's going to have it because later on there's going to be a final one. So nobody really sees that document unless it's the superintendent. So you can ask him and he could provide that information to you. And then we can end up going in the right direction in that process. The reason you want a survey too over a plot plan is the survey's required to show easements and setback lines 
and floodplains that may be critical, and none of that may be on a plot plan. People buy homes, and the salesperson didn't disclose that there was a 25-foot drainage easement that went right through the middle of the property where you thought you were going to put a swimming pool. I had one last year like that. Yeah. It happens so often, and it's so sad because... They usually never find out until after they've already finished the house and moved into the house. And then we're out there for that appointment. And we look at the documents and are like, did you realize this was here? And they're flabbergasted. Mm -hmm. I told the person I wanted to put a pool in, what do you mean there's this here? And easements, they're like, can you fix it? In my career, I've been able to get easement modifications three times in 30 years. It's not easy. The question is generally no. Sure. Say I just moved over here from a different state and I bought a house and it's 30 years old. Yes. And I decided I want to get a pool. Where do I get a form survey from? Where do I find the most current, the, the correct one, the right one? I can't find it. And then the builder's out of business. And as a consumer here in Texas, if I need that, where do I resource that from? So there's two things that are going to happen. When you close on your loan for your property, they survey your property. That's part of the closing process. So in your closing documents of the house, there'll be a copy of the survey. And it's generally on a legal piece of paper, unless it's a very large property, then it may be a larger copy of a survey. But that's where you're going to find it. Now, what I've run into on several people are like, I didn't get one in my closing documents. And you have a customer that's very blessed there because that means they paid cash for the house. So there was no survey done. And so they're going to have to hire a surveyor to come out and create that document. So it's the bank that's requiring the survey? Whoever's processing the loan is mm -hmm. requiring the survey. At least that's the way it is here in Texas. What sounds to me like most everybody likely has a survey in their closing documents. Most. And if they didn't, they could hire a survey company to come out and do a survey for them. And what does that typically cost? It depends on how complete a survey is. It's less than $1,000 generally. Or if it's a very extensive one, it might be $1,500. But you're not going to be able to get a building permit without that document. So if you don't have it, the sooner you start the process to get it, the more effectively your property can be developed and designed. So if you're listening now and you're thinking about getting a pool and you can't find your survey, now's the time to get a survey planned and get somebody out to survey your property because you're going to need it. We're not going to be able to get a permit and there's not going to be enough good information off just taking some measurements off the site in order to design a pool for you. So you need to have this survey. So there are also different types of surveys. Mm -hmm. Most of the surveys are just going to show the house and the grades. So you can also get a grading survey, okay, where they come out and actually locate all the elevations on your property. Like a topo. A to and they're going to develop a topo map. I go backpacking. Mm -hmm. I use a topo map all the time. And it's going to show exactly how the grades lay in your yard. And when I have a project that has greater than a 20-foot topography change on it, then I want a survey company to come out and do a topo plan of at least the area that we're working in. Sure. Now, sometimes I'm working on a large piece of property in a state. I don't need the whole thing, a grading survey, but we need to deal with the area in that space. Along with that, a lot of times they'll do a tree survey and they'll come in and locate all the trees and the type of tree and the size of the tree. And there are certain cities that we're working with now that 
trees have become a big deal after they mowed them down for the last 50 years. Now they're very concerned about the trees that are left. And so those trees are actually logged and monitored and you have to do the right thing around them and stay certain distances away and everything like that. So it's helpful to have that information as well. Yeah, we're going to have to talk about the trees at some point because that's a really big one here in North Texas with the amount of trees that there are. And I don't think everybody recognizes that they can't just mow down every tree that they want to and that some of them are protected and that some of them require a lot of attention and a lot of consideration if they're going to live. Oh, yeah. Cities now will put huge values on trees and the fine that is associated with removing that tree is quite large. But I was dealing with that back in Sacramento in the early 90s. They had aerial photography and they knew every heritage oak above a certain size was numbered and you'd go in to get your building permit and they'd be like, Oh no, you can't put a pool there. There's a heritage oak there. And you'd be like, Oh, how do you know that? <laughs> Cause it was all logged and monitored. Yes. Trees are becoming a bigger and bigger deal to work with. So the surveys, probably one of the most important things. And again, if you're buying a piece of property, that's the first thing I would ask a realtor is, can I see a copy of the survey? And if they hem and haul a whole lot about, we don't have one, we can't find one, I'd be like, I need this to know, especially if you've got like a creek behind or some water situation. A lot of times floodplains can be very large or you might be dealing with the Army Corps of Engineer. That may be on your property and there's great restrictions with all those things too that you want to know before you buy something what you're dealing with. Yeah, so that's a great point, too, and that is if you're buying a house and they can't find one, that probably needs to be a stipulation on closing that you need to provide me with one because you're going to need one at some point. It's not even just for pools. If you do an addition on your house, if you do improvements in your house and you get any sort of a permit, they're going to ask for the survey. So that's definitely probably the most important thing to have or one of the most important things. What would you say be another one? Besides the survey? Each town and city is going to have some different requirements on different things. I think that it's important that your designer or salesperson is doing all this stuff. But man, there's just so much that you need to be following up with and following along with. For instance, some cities require that you have to have a backwash line going from your filter to your sewer line. And you might not even have a filter that requires backwashing. Each municipality is going to have some very different and unique rules and considerations for your swimming pool. Just like Every city has different setbacks from the property lines. Even cabanas, I ran into one the other day, the city would only allow a structure to be 12 feet tall. How do you put a roof on a cabana and stay under 12 feet is a little bit challenging. So we ended up doing a shed roof. So we were able to pull off a one to three slope on it. But I've had to go in front of cities and get variances for height restrictions and things like that. But the designer that you're working with should have knowledge base of what the setbacks and codes are. Although, as speaking for one in the industry, the frustrating thing is cities change those. And have you ever been notified by a city when they changed what their rules were? Never. Yeah. We always find out when they're in there trying to get the permit and they're like, yeah, you're the first one. Oh, you love when you hear that. Oh, great. You changed the rules and we're the first ones that have to deal with it. So... One of the things that, again, because in North Texas, we are very unique in the fact that we have the most diverse, I would say, soil types of any spot in the United States. 
Oh, so we're going to go now to the soils testing. Yes. Yeah. Soils react differently. And so you have everything from solid rock, which is difficult to deal with in the beginning, but then it doesn't go anywhere. But then you have sand, then you have clay. Okay. And we're blessed or cursed, whichever you want to look at, with all three in a very small geographic area. In fact, the clay that we have here, I was told by a engineer, is the second worst clay in the world. There's one worse in South Africa, but the Eagle Forge Shale is a band of soil. What this looks like is underneath the ground, there's different types that lay next to each other, almost like different rivers flowing next to each other, and they can be extremely diverse. So the crazy thing is the Eagle Ford shale from wet to dry will expand and contract 8 to 12 inches. In my soils class in college, what I was instructed to build in this area is cows, not build cows, but graze cows, because you shouldn't build anything in that soil type. But in Dallas-Fort Worth, that band of soil runs right in between Dallas and Fort Worth. There's even some cities here that, for the most part, no one wants to build pools there as a result. All right. The whole city's in the Eagle Forge Shale. Mm -hmm. And there's great foundation repair companies in this part of the country because from wet to dry, that moves. Now, they do things to minimize that, but that's why builders all require you to have a soaker hose around the foundation of your house in some of those areas to keep the soil moisture constant because... If you don't get bone dry and don't get sloppy wet, if you keep the soil moisture constant, then you don't have the expansion and contraction. The expansion and contraction happens when we go from real dry to real wet. What's ironic is one mile west of the Eagle Ford shale band is pure sand. And in pure sand, you have no expansion and contraction whatsoever. So you literally have people that your friend at high school's parents and Your parents have totally two different structures that have to be built literally within miles of each other because it's simply the soil. So what there is is what's called soil testing. And when a custom home's built, that is always done. When subdivisions are done, they usually do soil testing about every third lot. Now, have you ever been able to get a soils report in a track subdivision? No. There's usually just a generic... Soils report for the whole community. And I think the point here, just to get, bring everybody up to speed, is because I think most homeowners have possibly heard about expansive soils. Okay, so there's expansive soils. What does that mean? And that's why we're talking about these soils tests, because the soils test is going to give us the information that we need to have to determine what kind of build you're going to need based upon the soil conditions at your specific lot. And to Mike's point a minute ago, you could have Literally, houses in the same neighborhood where the soil conditions on each of those properties are entirely different. Very different. And so the build is different. The cost is different. When you have to go in and put piers underneath the pool or grade beams or do soil injections or pier caps or whether they're helico piers or or concrete piers, it adds an expense to the pool. But it also adds a certain level of protection to the pool because now the pool is going to sit on something solid. And pools, they need to be flat. They need to be level. Otherwise, you can tell the difference of them. I've seen floated pools. You've seen floated pools. We've seen pools that have settled in the ground. That's really a big deal. And when you're talking about this kind of money, 
that just becomes super, super critical. So when we're talking about soils tests, this is what we're talking about. What is the expansive nature of the particular soils on your lot? So what happens is someone will come out, they can do a boring into the ground. Typically they go down 20 feet and in that boring, they'll come back with an analysis and they'll tell you in one foot increments what the soil conditions are in those areas. And there's a lot of things which we're not going to get into today. About. But that was the different levels you were talking about a minute ago. Yeah. They're going to read different levels down in there and they're going to have some sort of value associated with them, Correct. how expansive or not they are. Correct. A soils report is something that generally, unless you're doing a custom home, you're not going to have. But in most subdivisions, they will not give that information out because they're concerned that you're going to use it against them for, for foundation repair later on. That's true. But they can come. I've had them because of access. Sometimes they can't get in the backyard and they'll just do a boring in the front yard and take the test. And generally from a front to backyard, it's not going to be different. Mm. But if it's a larger piece of property, we'd prefer to get it taken from the area of the project where you're building the pool and the cabana and all the features that you're incorporating. Now, what also happens sometimes is there's a soils report that was done but then the builder or developer brought more soil in and there's a layer of that on top. So there's all different things. So to have it where we don't over-engineer it or under-engineer it, a soils report's a great thing to have. And typically, how much does a soils report cost? They're going to be probably $1,500, $3,000. Different parts of the country, it'll be different that will come out and do that. But we're talking a small investment given the overall scope of the project. If your structure is not built properly, as you said, all those different things can happen. And you'd rather know on the front end what needed versus getting surprised later on. Absolutely. And it definitely adds a cost associated with the pool. But at the same time, that's your insurance. Now you know what you have to build, why you have to build it a certain way. And that's really critical. And really, at the end of the day, I don't know if you could get a real accurate estimate or let alone a quality build if you didn't have all that information. One like thing. rolling the dice, maybe. Yeah, there's people that gamble. Vegas makes a pretty good living out there because mm. people like to gamble. And as a designer, I'm not interested in gambling on a new job. Absolutely uh, not. I'd rather get it right the first time. Although the remodel department does do repair work on those that didn't. Well, another thing that would come up on a new build would be you've got an existing house and you've got maybe a lot of downspouts coming off your roof. Those go into a hose that drain out into your yard somewhere. You've got an irrigation system, a sprinkler system. Does the pool company just automatically take care of all that stuff? Depends on what they're contracted to do. But you know, drainage is very important in this part of the country because of the soils that we have. Again, we feel that we're not going to leave it up to someone else to take care of that. We want to make sure that it's taken care of properly. So we take care of that. Yes. When I go into the back of the house, I want to know where your downspouts are. I want to know now your sprinklers. What I try to explain to people, and I, I find that this is probably the clearest definition, is we tear them up for free. And from the street to the project site area, there will be a 10-foot path of utter destruction. People ask all the time, can you put some boards down and protect my lawn? And I remember once upon a time, long, long ago, I tried that. And it basically drove the plywood into the ground and smashed all the grass anyway. And 
made a big mess and ruined the plywood. Yeah, and the excavators weren't happy with me either because it was harder to get traction driving across the plywood. Anyway, it was a big mess. So 10-foot path of utter destruction usually gives people a clear idea of what will be saved. And that's if you have a 10-foot clear path into the backyard, which oftentimes we don't. No, so that's where you're going to start. Because whether the dump truck drives back and forth or the bobcat drives back and forth a couple hundred times, it's just basically going to make a mess. Now, one thing that I do is so people properly stay in their lane is sometimes I've had projects with real long access and we've actually gone in and put temporary fencing up basically to give them a clear path so they don't wander all over the property getting back to the site and drive under 25 different trees to get there and protect the trees. Another thing that a lot of times is people don't understand, you mentioned the water and the irrigation, but the utilities that come to the house are something that can greatly affect the cost of a project. Because they could be in the way. They could be in the way. In certain areas like Dallas, a lot of the older areas, all the utilities go from the house to the alley. And so that means they are in the way. And you can get those marked, but you can call an underground service location and they can come out and mark those utilities so you know where they're at so you don't get surprised later on. Oh, we're getting ready to dig the pool and we just found out that the electric going to the house is right through where the pool is. So now it's going to take us another five weeks to get that relocated around. And oh, it also costs $5,000 to do that. Whoops. Yeah. One of the things I noticed here that's different from Phoenix is that gas meters seem to be wherever they want to put them, out at the road, halfway into the yard, on the side of the house, behind the house, in the alley. That has to do with the age of the project. So some of the older homes, yes, the meters used to be out at the street, and the newer ones are generally up at the house. And then, as I said, a lot of the stuff in Dallas and the older areas, if they're in the alleyway. When you get your utilities marked, the one thing that sometimes catches people by surprise is they'll only mark the main lines coming in. So if you have a garage and there's an electric line that runs from the house to the garage underground, they're not going to locate that. Other thing that doesn't get located is sewer lines. So sewer line isn't, but you can sometimes figure out where they're at by where the cleanouts are whether they're in the back of the house or the front of the house. Typically, most houses, I think, that are on an alley, it would probably go to the alley, would it not? Some do and some don't. So that's the hard thing is, and what a clean out is, there's two three-inch pipes usually pretty close together. They're kind of sticking up out of the ground. And they're usually where the main plumbing comes into the house. So sometimes that's where there's a bathroom or something. You can usually see them usually by the front door somewhere and a lot of new construction, but old construction, sometimes it's a treasure hunt trying to find those because they've been buried under the ground and covered up. Oh, for sure. But sewer lines won't be located. Basically, they're going to come out and locate your gas and your electric and your uh, cable. Now, your cable's the worst of them because your cable line is usually buried about two inches. Oh, that's a generous number. Right. That's probably the most important thing to locate when you start doing construction because so many people work out of their homes. And if you cut that, then it's going to be a couple of days before they come back out and fix that. So what we always do is ask for them to put a temporary line in above ground so we can prop it up and drive under it and 
know where it's at. So there's not a surprise in, in running into that. And here, there's no charge to have a temporary one put above ground. But if you break it, that's thousands of dollars in repair. It's a good thing to know where your utilities are. Now, one thing also that I run into a lot is overhead electric lines. Oh, for sure. And what is it about overhead electrical lines that's a problem for swimming pools? Electricity and water don't mix real well. So Good point. When you take that pole and you're cleaning the pool and you touch onto that electrical line, that's, yeah, you're dead. Mm-hmm. So not a good thing. Cities protect us as much as they can, but you're going to have two electric lines to deal with. You have the supply line coming from the transformer to your personal house that might be above the ground. And here, you have to stay at least 10 feet away from that. So that's going to attach to a mast that's typically mounted right above the panel, and that comes off the telephone pole that's providing the power. Correct. Got to be 10 feet away from it. That's here. Mm -hmm. Now, other jurisdictions may be different, so you'd have to understand what yours is. I think it's pretty much the same all over the place. I think it's any C680 stuff. It probably is the universal building code situation. Now, I have a lot of clients that are like, I didn't like that in the first place, so let's take it underground. And so they'll come down the pole out in the alleyway and run a line underground up to the transformer and put a new line in. And that way it's safe and it's not in the way and you may solve two problems with that situation. So as a general rule, though, would you agree that the pool structure itself, the water line, cannot be any closer than 10 feet away from any power line? Correct. So now you have overhead power lines that are supplying the whole neighborhood. Mm -hmm. They're connecting transformer to transformer. There's a calculation, and it's based on voltage through the line, and the height of the line from the ground is going to require you to be a certain distance away from that. And the lower the line is, the farther you have to be away. If you've got an electrical line and it's running back across the alley and that line seems like it's 10 feet off the ground, you're going to have to be a pretty good distance from that with the swimming pool. And so we have to call the utility company out and have them tell us what that distance is. Gotcha. And again, that's usually in older areas. Most of the newer areas, all the power lines are below the ground. So it's not something that we have to deal with. Sure. And some of those that I've noticed, and it's the same in Phoenix, is a lot of those overhead power lines are on houses that are run in the alleys. Yeah. And it's either on one side of the alley or the other. So if you're on the side of the alley with the lines, you're getting shortchanged here a little bit because you're going to lose a whole bunch of your yard. That is totally correct. And so some people are like, how come my neighbor didn't have to do this? The line was on the other side of the alley. So it's very site-specific, the things that you're looking at. And that's a great point. And it goes right back to what we were talking about once before about every single yard is unique and it's different. The layout is different. The, how the utilities come in is different. So your designer, your salesperson has got to take all that into consideration and you got to be aware of it to know what we can even do. And if we want to do something, we have to have access. Mm-hmm. We don't magically fly the machine into the backyard to dig your swimming pool. Right. And a lot of people are like, you can get through here. And years ago, I used to tell excavators where they could drive their dump trucks and where they couldn't. I had some that just said, here, you take the truck and drive it through there. Good luck, buddy. One thing you have to understand is if a truck goes in, it's got to come back out loaded. So to me, I don't want to bring a loaded truck across a driveway because more than likely I'm going to crack the driveway or the odds are high. Now, sometimes people are like, driveway's not in good shape. So if you crack it, then so be it. And 
asphalt's even something else. Here in Texas, someone's got an asphalt drive and it's 300 feet long and they want you to drive up and down that in the middle of the summer and the asphalt's soft, you're going to tear the driveway to pieces. And you're not going to be happy. They're not going to be happy. Access is really important to figure out how you're going to get in. And we can get machines that are literally machines wrapped around a human being. It's like a human being with a teaspoon. They're out there digging. And the thing is, if you have a little machine like that, you have a little machine and you have to have a bobcat that drives back and forth between, you have to have two little machines to get in at some small spaces. But I've even had projects that we've had to hand dig. We had one area here that the pools are all in townhomes. In between the garage and the townhome is the space. And you go into the space through the garage door, the three-foot wide door, not the big roll-up door, the three-foot wide door. And you have to go up six, eight stairs to go through the door. And it's a hand dig. That's a real fun one. Does that cost more? Just a little. But access cost is going to depend on the size of the machine. We want to bring the biggest machine in possible to dig the project. And sometimes, especially if you have a really rocky situation, you need a big piece of equipment. I had a client at one point that there was a fine to drive a certain tonnage into their subdivision. And he went, what's the fine? And I told him what the fine was. And he says, that's fine. Here's the money for it. We're dealing with solid rock here. I'll deal with the fine. I got to get this big machine in and out. So he paid a fine for damaging the roads. So access really becomes a big deal because to Mike's point, it's going to look like a disaster from the access area at the street going into the backyard because these machines have to go back and forth. Who knows how many times, hundreds of times in some cases, and it's just going to get torn up. And so in a perfect world, somebody would have, what, 10 feet of access and you can get around a corner with a big truck and back right up to a track hoe while digging the pool. That's the ideal situation, is it not? You may have a tree that's in the way. You may have a neighbor's tree that's in the way. AC units. AC units. We move those. When you're measuring even the face of the gas meter, that gas meter sticks out a good 18 inches or so from the house. So if you're measuring and you got, oh, I've got... The other thing is a lot of people will measure to the board of the fence. You got to measure to the post of the fence because you got to get past that. And sometimes it comes down to inches. And it's amazing to me what these guys can drive through. I wouldn't be able to save my life. I have a hard time driving sometimes on the highway and staying in my lane, much less driving a five foot six bobcat down an area that's six foot wide and going for a hundred feet. Now, that's where the slope of the area also will come into play because if there's much of a pitch on it, they're not going to be able to drive through that space either. Going down the side yard on a pitch? Yeah, that's fun. I have been absolutely amazed at the skill level of our excavators and what they do is really profound to me. I spent a lot of years in Phoenix building pools, and in most cases, we had really good access. There were times when we had to use small bobcats and go in through people's side yards, but it's relatively flat there. We don't really have soil conditions there that are a big problem. And so it was really easy. And coming over here and seeing just how different the soil conditions are in these yards, it's been fascinating to me just to watch and see how skilled these excavators are. And what a great job they do in setting and laying the foundations for these pools. Yeah, we work with true artisans of their craft in so many different situations. One thing in this process, too, is I love to get a set of the house plans. Oh, for sure. So to me, and one of the things that's neat about architecture today is there's a lot of glass. And with a lot of glass, you have great views. 
But if you look at some older homes, windows and doors didn't open up as much to the outside. So the more I have that, I can study then view corridors from inside the house. Because I've had people say, well, it's amazing. We walked in the front door and we saw this water feature through this certain window. It was really amazing how that just happened to happen. And it was like, it just accidentally happened. I basically plotted where your front door was and I plotted where the window was. And so I knew the line of sight. And so that's where we put the water feature spilling out of the spa. You can get into that level of detail if you've got detailed drawings. And to me, that's the fun of, oh, when I walked down the staircase into the family room, I looked right at this feature. And, or, well, and now with our design software, we can take them inside the house. Exactly. And show them what that's going to look like in 3D. It's pretty awesome. Here's where we're at the kitchen sink washing the dishes tonight. So, Mike, we've gone like almost 40 minutes now just talking about setting up a pool. And we've covered a lot, but there'll be a lot more to add to it. But we're at the point now that we need to do the word of the episode. We've got to do another poolside perspectives vocabulary lesson. And I think the word's going to be hydraulics. Going to go with the flow. That's a real important word that doesn't get brought up very much. What's important to you about hydraulics? It's one of those words that gets thrown around a lot. And more often than not, I think that there's a lot of things that are taken for granted in our industry. And when professionals and people that have been trained and skilled and educated, when we think of hydraulics, we're thinking about the flow of water, as Mike said. And this water that flows through these pipes is part of the circulation system for your swimming pool. It's like one of the most key, most important things of this pool. It's like an automobile in a car. You can have a crappy engine in a car and you can have a really efficient engine in a car. And one's going to get really good gas mileage and the other one's going to get terrible gas mileage and give you problems. When we're talking about hydraulics as it pertains to a swimming pool, we're talking about the movement of the water through the systems. And these systems on new pools, on pools that are built these days, are very complex. And the complexity is actually a good thing because it's a way that the pools can clean. It's a way that they can circulate. They keep the water healthy. They distribute chemicals. It does all kinds of things. And as I have said before, I've done hundreds of renovation jobs over the years. And the way that they used to build pools. Oh, with the big pipe? Uh, yeah, yeah. The, the big <laughs> one-inch pipe. And the service guys or somebody would go out and install a bigger pump on a pool with really small piping. And the motor would keep burning out on it. And people would complain about it. It's crazy to me, and we're talking over the past 30 years, just how much our industry has morphed into being this little small closet, little swimming pool industry to this industry that's now serving up to people these incredible outdoor oases. And that hydraulics thing, again, has to do with the movement of water. So it's really important. So how would you explain what hydraulics are? I think your definition works really well for me. It's the lifeblood of the whole pool. It's like having your blood movement through your body. If it doesn't flow right, you're not going to perform very well. I think it's a great question for a homeowner to ask a potential designer. What type of hydraulic systems do you guys use? And part of my goal, at least for poolside perspectives, is again, that we provide our listeners with a set of tools so that they can hopefully find out if they're dealing with somebody that's really going to be the right person for their job. And it doesn't mean they're not the right person for a job. It just means, are they the right person for your job? If you're just building a relatively small swimming pool project, it's a basic pool, maybe not water features at all on it, there's not a lot to do on it. 
But some of these pools become so complex. Some of the projects that you and I have done, there's just so much going on and that becomes super, super critical. And that movement of water is just important. I remember years ago doing training and I would be talking to builders and they would say something to me on the order of what difference does it make? It's just a pipe and the water has to go through it, whether it's going slow or going fast. The way that I explain this to homeowners is I've always said to them, look, if you want to understand hydraulics, here's a really simple way to do it. And I don't do this anymore because I can't drink Coke, but go to McDonald's, get yourself a Coke or a Diet Coke and get two straws. Get the one straw, which is massive because they have the biggest straws that there is, and then get a coffee straw and then start sucking that coffee either with the big straw or the little straw and tell me there's not a difference. Very much and so. that would make perfect sense to people. In swimming pools, bigger pipe is properly designed is always better, but bigger engines and bigger motors aren't definitely the way to go. So there's systems that can be fine-tuned, and if you do it right, if you properly size the piping, if you put the right pool equipment and match it with the right products, you can fine-tune these pools to be super efficient to run on almost no energy and to keep that water moving 24-7, it's really very different. The variable speed aspect that it is now mandatory to install all new pumps in the United States have to be variable speed pumps. And with that, it is basically you're trying to run it through at a slow rate. And so hydraulics are becoming even more important because... You just can't overcome everything with a bigger pump, which was very inefficient and not safe for many different reasons, which we'll get into later. But yeah, hydraulics are the backbone of everything. And so where does someone, how would someone, a consumer know that someone has a knowledge base of that? Is there training in the pool industry that somebody can go through that they should have certifications or something? Yeah. Unlike when we first entered the industry, there is a plethora of educational opportunities within the industry. And there's groups of people and professionals that work together to help one another out. Certainly the Genesis program is a great one. PHTA has, I think does the Genesis stuff. I'm drawing a blank here, Mike here. Watershape University. Watershape University, which I should have remembered that. They've got a fantastic program. There's quite a bit of information out there, and there's tons of classes. You can go to the annual international show, and you teach classes there. There's all kinds of places to go for somebody in the industry. Now, consumer, there's probably no need for you to do that. But I think where the need is that you have a fundamental understanding of the types of questions you need to ask in order to find out who's going to be the best person to do your job. So you need to know a little bit about hydraulics. And I think just asking somebody, how long have you been in the industry? Have you done any specific training? Do you guys do a hydraulic design for each pool? Yeah. Where did you get your hydraulic certification from? That'd be a great question. I think so. So day one, when I was in the pool industry, they sat me down and said, okay, here's the pipes. This is what flows through them gallons per minute. Here's the pumps. This is what the outputs are. This is what you can do in an efficient manner. So I didn't realize how blessed I was that I got late. Mike Jeremy has sat me down and told me, this is how you do it. And I was like, oh, okay. And I thought everybody knew how to do that. And later on, I found out that was not the case. And we, as a company in the 90s, were using two and a half and three inch and four inch plumbing, which was basically, I didn't realize, unheard of at the time. But it's something that if your person that's coming out to help you create your environment has training in that area, that is very critical. 
or they should have someone that does have the training that they work with that maybe is reviewing things and things like that. We could talk about that for an entire segment. And the intent was to talk about a word, and I probably picked the wrong word because that is an entire segment all of it of its own. So what's the question of the day, Kevin? Yes. Maria from California sent this in, and she'd probably be upset if we didn't address this. You're right, and I stand corrected. Thank you, sir. So she wanted to know why you would do a beach entry and if that is the best solution for a shallow water area. All right, do you want me to give you my perspective? Sure, I'm sure we have different perspectives. Cool side perspectives. There's an S at the end, so we each can have different ones. <laughs> all right, I think beach entries, in theory, are cool. In all the times that I've been to Mexico or been to the Caribbean or even been to Hawaii, and I've been to big resorts that have massive pools with a big team of people taking care of everything, and the pools are so large that the slope on the beach entry is very mild and gradual and makes sense. Yes. I think that's really cool. That's awesome. The problem is that most residential pools aren't big enough to facilitate what I would consider a safe slope, an acceptable slope, a slope that makes sense. And that doesn't even take into consideration the fact that in a sloped entry into a pool, you're going to have higher evaporation rates. You're probably going to get birds that are going to love spending time there and they're going to be doing their thing in the pool. If you have an in-floor cleaning system, which I highly suggest anybody have, it's going to blow the water right out of the pool because there's really not a good way to adjust those heads down so that they clean the areas properly. I just don't think that there's enough room in most residential yards to do a beach entry like people are thinking. And I think that's part of the problem is you go somewhere and you think, oh, this is so cool. This is really neat. I want it in my yard. I want it in my pool. But it just doesn't work. So I've found that if I do some things, this process works a little bit better. I look at the slope as a handicap ramp. So ADA, one in 12. 8%. Okay. So if I do an 8% slope going in, what that means is for me to drop down to six inches, just six inches. And so that means the first four feet of it, it's dry because I got to get to the water line, Yep, which is down below the tile and the coping. So I'm going down, the first third of it's dry. Now, the other thing is the material that's on this area has to be exposed to air. So you're limited by what you can put there. So you want to put something usually that can handle the wet, dry situation, which some stones can go in there. Some tiles could be put there. I don't recommend bringing the interior finish of the pool up in that space. That's that's a disaster. That is a bad thing to do because those surfaces aren't set to dry out. And what happens is your water line moves up and down. This line moves up and down on that space. So first third of it's dry, and then you're sloping and you get into six inches of water. It takes 10 feet to make that happen. Exactly. Okay. So the challenge, as you said earlier, is most spaces don't have 10 or 12 or 14 feet to properly handle this. And so I've seen several, what I call skateboard ramps. I've seen some beach entries that you would break your ankle going down. I have seen some that you would get dangerously hurt and does just don't make any sense. None whatsoever. They couldn't have possibly been built to any standard that I'm aware of. So the other thing is, have you heard about Polaris is escaping the pool. 
up the beach entry. And then the water hose is squirting all over the place and blowing water out of your pool. That's another nice disaster story. So the Polaris driving straight out of the pool? Yeah. Yeah, I'm out of here. Yeah, I'm gone. Mm -hmm. So the thing is, it is a very cool look, especially with an organic style pool. Mm -hmm. I think people like the transition in. But I tell people from a function standpoint, you're much better off usually creating the same functional space in less than six feet with a tanning ledge. With six inches of water. Six inches of water over the whole thing. Yes. Versus a sliver of water to start at three feet and going down to six inches. So it's a lot shallower space. So from an aesthetic standpoint, I think it's very nice in some design situations. From a functional standpoint, as you stated, I think it's hard to pull off. I think, Maria, that I would recommend in most cases that you use a tanning ledge over a beach entry. What's your thought? All right, Maria, if you heard that, I think that's the answer is that unless you're building a very large pool, and actually if you're going to build a really large pool, then it's going to cost a lot more money. You've got to take into consideration the aesthetics of it, but also the functionality and utility of it and weigh that against the cost and having the space and a room for it. One thing I should probably point out, because I've had numerous clients think this too, because they've gone to the resort and the beach entry goes all the way to the floor. Okay, yes. the beach entry I'm talking about replaces the only the top step. Correct. Then you're going to have steps after that, or mm -hmm. it's going to drop off. Yeah, because if you went all the way to the floor, it might be 40 feet to the bottom of the floor. Minimum of 30. Mm -hmm. That's 35. Yeah, it takes a lot of space for that to happen. So again, it's not, and so a lot of people are thinking, oh, that's what it does, because that's what it did at my resort. And that's, again, not going to work in a residential swimming pool very well. All right, so we got all the questions answered. We've gone through the shade discussion and topics. So I think, are you about ready to wrap this one up, Mike? Yeah. So we don't get back off track, getting back to our discussion earlier with asking the right questions, having all the information to recap a little bit. So we want a survey. We want a survey that's been signed off by a engineer. Survey, not a plot plan, an actual survey. We want to have a SOAS report. And a SOAS report that's specific to your property and even, if possible, specific to where the pool's going. And the outdoor living, yes. And the outdoor living. Yeah, because if we're going to build any sort of a structure, it's likely going to have piers and grade beams underneath it. Good. Required. So you need those two items at the very least and then the utilities, understanding where your utilities are, understanding whether or not your sewer line runs right where your pool's going to go or your electrical line or whatever else. Those things to have. What else? Did we miss anything? Floor plans to the house. You know, floor plans. Floor that, yeah. So, so if you get house plans, it makes it a little easier for us. Although I'm sure like I do, you still measure every single yard because how many floor plans have you seen or plow plans have you seen that aren't exactly right? Sometimes that's wrong. But yes, I measure every door and window on the property. And people are like, why are you measuring the doors and windows down the side yard? I'm like, you might want to put your heater here. Heater has to be five feet away from any opening window or door because of carbon monoxide. So we don't want it to come up later on. Oh, this is where you wanted to put the pool equipment. Well, we actually can't put it here because it, it won't function. So now there's a change order. Again, want to eliminate as many of those as possible. Absolutely. As I mentioned, grading plans, tree plans also are sometimes helpful. All the topo. And if I have a project that's under 20 feet, I create my own. Mm -hmm. because I do work with a lot of hillsides, so that's critical. So those are the items that you want to bring to the table when you reach out to someone and start to create your project. Excellent. 
This show is all about helping you become a better buyer, a better pool owner, and hopefully you're going to find some insights into how to enjoy your pool even more so, how to help your friends, your family, anybody looking to buy a pool in the future or that want to remodel their backyard, add an outdoor fireplace, fire pit, add an outdoor kitchen area, add some shade cells or whatever else it is. We want to be that resource for you. And that's the end goal here. And we promise that there's going to be a ton of information. We'll try to go through it, you know, as relatively quickly, but also slow so people can understand. But the intent of the show, the reason Mike and I are doing this is because we just got a lot in our heads and we want to share it. So we hope to see you here every single week. Thanks for listening.